Hi everyone, this is Dave Wright and welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. I hope you're having a top week working with your team. As always, a quick content recap from some of the recent work we've published at playerdevelopmentproject.com. Firstly, we've recently pushed out a new Q&A video with both Dan Wright and myself discussing how coaches can find the balance to avoid overcoaching. This was a really enjoyable discussion and one which involves plenty of considerations. More recently, we featured a blog from a new contributor, David Garcia. David is a UEFA A-licensed coach based in the United States who's kindly shared an article called The Edge of Chaos. This piece dives into the importance of chaos in learning environments, discusses how coaches can find a balance when creating an appropriate challenge, and how we can support players to become adaptable. So it's a really interesting read. Our latest content is the focus of today's podcast. In this long-form and wide-ranging discussion, I was delighted to host Mark Upton, longtime PDP contributor and founder of My Fastest Mile. Mark has a wealth of coaching and sports system experience, and he joined me today with PDP lead researcher Jimmy Vaughan to talk about creativity, control, culture, and more. And that includes Jimmy's recently published academic paper, Creativity, a Wicked Problem. A bit of a warning, this chat goes off on some interesting tangents and hopefully helps you take a different perspective on your coaching and also encourages you to consider your environment, your culture, and the systems that we all work within. I really enjoyed hosting this one, more so because when we planned and discussed the conversation prior to the call, we had a lot to discuss and ended up diving down some pretty cool rabbit holes. We've also published the entire conversation on the podcast for free, and it's available on the website in video form under the Masterclass Discussion section. As always, if you're yet to sign up to the PDP website, you can choose from a range of membership options at playerdevelopmentproject.com to suit you as an individual or organize a club membership for you and your colleagues. We've got some more great initiatives on the way in 2020 for members, so we hope you can join our community. Lastly, if you get time today, leave us a review via your podcast app, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi everyone, my name's Dave Wright and welcome to another Player Development Project Masterclass discussion. Today I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests, one of which is Mark Upton, co-founder of My Fastest Mile. Mark, how are you? Dave, I'm well. How are you, mate? Really good, mate. I'm looking forward to this. And of course, we've got our lead researcher, Jimmy Vaughan here. Jimmy, how are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. Really good to have you guys on board. I've said to a few people and I've been saying to both of you for a while, I've wanted to tee one of these up because it's been a long time since the three of us have sat on a call and talked all things coaching. And we're going to dive down a few rabbit holes and probably go off on a few tangents. And that's what we're really hoping to achieve out of this conversation, to challenge some things and hopefully shed some light on some of Jimmy's recent work as well and just discuss that. So Jimmy, first of all, I want to congratulate you. You've recently had your paper published, uh, Developing Creativity to Enhance Human Potential in Sport. Now, this is a, a pretty heavy read. There's you know, a, almost a, a decade's worth of work probably there. And I know that over that decade, things have evolved massively for you in terms of the direction and, and the way you've gone about this research. Talk to us a little bit just on the surface level about that journey, perhaps personally, and, and, and some of the challenges that have gone with putting this into an academic journal and, and, and I guess a little bit of the background to it. Um, yeah, it's a big one. I think the first thing to... <laughs> to highlight is that it can be a pretty painful process. Mm. So um, I, talking about it might be pretty cathartic in helping me get beyond uh, the review process itself. Um, so yeah, there's yeah, 
plenty of uh, rejection to get over and um, the review process can be a little bit torturous at times. But it was, um, yeah, it was a big milestone to finally, and I say finally, get this paper published. Like you say, it's been something I've been working on for a, for a number of years. And I suppose it really started at the, the start of my PhD journey. These ideas in this paper kind of started to, I mean, the seeds were planted then. And as you pointed to, it's, it's evolved over the course of the, what's been four years now, as I've learned um, different things and gained different perspectives. Um, so it, yeah, it's really nice to finally have it, have it out there. Um, and what's been interesting is then talking to people about it afterwards. Mm. And I found that more challenging than I thought I might. And I think it's, I mean, a lot of that is to do with using scientific language in order to be precise with what you're saying and get published versus how we then communicate, you know, day to day. Um, and finding some stories and some analogies to kind of bring the ideas to life has been where I've been at uh, in the last wee while. But um, yeah, it's really interesting looking back on some of the conversations I had with Mark and Al and yourself, like two, you know, three years ago even. And there's, you know, there's times there where I've been having that conversation, furiously scribbling things down. Uh, and then like I look back at that now and I'm like oh well, that's where I started to kind of mm. understand this thing and and that led me down a rabbit hole that, that led to that so um, yeah I'm extremely grateful for the conversations we've had previously and with uh, with Al and, and Mark at My Fastest Mile and more recently with John there as well. Mm. So, so Jimmy, obviously the topic's creativity and, and I know that ecological dynamics underpins a lot of this. Now, this is a concept that both of you are pretty familiar with. I mean, where do we start in terms of taking some of these findings, some of the, some of the I guess, conclusion, conclusions that you came to through this process and, and challenging questions that you put up and starting to sort of share that with coaches and understand what it means? Well... I mean, maybe I throw it to Mark here. He's pretty, uh, pretty expert in terms of communicating this stuff. Um, Agreed. What do you think, Tuppy? I think you wrote the paper, didn't you, mate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, if we, if we backtrack a little bit, Jeff, like Jimmy, I think it, it was interesting. Yeah, just recalling those chats we'd have a few years ago, where it felt like you kind of you you had you had something you, or a few things kind of you wanted to say, I think, like personally from your journey, but you also, mm. I think, understood like there was a lot that you were trying to get your head around and understand. And I think it's been just interesting to watch how it's evolved. Like, I guess, um, kind of not so that being the why, but what and how you've then evolved those ideas um, or those thoughts to, to then pull the paper together. So some of the, the theories is used, I guess, creativity being central. But then, yeah, so if you do want to have a crack at what sits around creativity, so if it's like things like complexity or ecological dynamics and what's ethnography, for example, as a, mm. as a different method or lens of looking through, I think those are really interesting kind of almost natural evolutions in terms of the approach you were taking throughout it. Yeah, well, h hold on to 
that for me because maybe um maybe i'll shoot right to the to the end to like the the, the practical side of it and mm-hmm. what it might mean and then maybe we can we can kind of work back towards that yeah um so for me the as you pointed out the big interest has been creativity but creativity and culture so like how does culture does culture influence people's ability um or does it create the conditions where people can be creative uh, and then the litmus test for that has been football uh, as something with kind of standardized rules that you can look at in different cultural contexts um and for me <laughs> what comes out of this paper and perhaps there's a little bias there at the beginning that's that's led to these type of conclusions is that um like understanding our culture is way more nuanced than i originally thought when i started out so when i started out it was motivational climate it was really how i was looking to understand culture um and through like discovering the different lenses of ecological dynamics um complexity in general um like it kind of opened up to other ways of understanding how culture influences the way people move through the world um and i suppose the emphasis on on ecological dynamics um which is a theory for how we develop skilled movement um that that kind of opened up a a completely different rabbit hole to go down um but in saying that coming back to the the core of it is if we can better understand like where we stand the cultural context um and if we can appreciate that there are different levels that are going to influence what happens in our practice whether that's macro, you know, economics, uh, the system that we're in at the moment, how that shapes organizational structures, how organizational structures will have an influence on the motivational climate that we experience and will amplify certain values and dampen others, how that then relates to day-to-day interactions between people, whether we're more likely to compete with each other or collaborate with each other, um, and then that trickles down to the way coaches interact with players and players interact with players uh, and parents interact with each other on the sideline and view what's going on on the pitch um, all of that is involved and i suppose the journey has been about how much of that can we include to so how broad can the scope be um, and still be considered somewhat um, and still be considered somewhat valid in terms of um or yeah or, or not be taking in too much that we can't we're just paralyzed by the complexity of it all yeah. um so so how broad can our scope of inquiry be so what rather than rather than from a scientific point of view or a research point of view going well we want to know about xyz and everything else we're just gonna for now we're gonna leave it's kind of like, well, no, how much of the alphabet can we, can we include? So what is it possible to, to, mm. to include uh, and understand about our cultural context? Um, and then the more, the, 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 the more holistic and the more nuanced that picture, 
um, the more helpful it can be in informing our practice. Um, and I suppose that's why talking about wicked problems resonated so much because that's recognizing that any issue or many of the major issues that we face today are, are wrapped up um, with other issues and reliant upon other cultural contexts or other groups and so we change one thing and it, and it leads to a, it can lead to a ripple effect and change many other things in unforeseen ways. So recognizing creativity and creative development and human development in that way becomes a starting point for going, well, we need a broader scope to really understand the problem here. And then arguing for a transdisciplinary point of departure is going, well, rather than starting with a, a discipline, like starting from the point of view of psychology or the point of view of biology, or the point of view of pedagogy or like what what is the what is the challenge in front of us and then what are the appropriate lenses that we bring to this specific issue um, and then there's there's wider questions about what are the most appropriate lenses to view certain phenomena um, and then I suppose coming back then to what that means on the pitch well should we talk tactics with our players? Um, and, and when we do that, what, what is the reason for that? Because are we, and even just the, the place of, of verbal, um, verbal instruction and the type of verbal instruction, um, when you look at the, the reality of us being, or, or what, the perspective of us being complex adaptive systems um, and perception action being what leads to skill acquisition well then if that's the if we feel that that's the primary um, way of learning a sport like football or a team sport then the perception action cycle if you like doesn't necessarily need to involve like uh, verbal communication or declarative knowledge. So where does that sit in terms of how we go about working on the pitch? So that means that manipulating constraints um, is probably a, a really good place to, to start. It means that when we do talk to players, maybe it's about setting a more broad intention uh, rather than going into the details of specific movements and when you might do them and how you might do them. So the, the communication becomes like more abstract um, and broader. So these are some of the ideas that, that I'm now playing with, having, having been on this journey. So how do we shape an intention in a, in a training session? which comes from the idea that we're working with a, an athlete environment or player environment system and system intentionality is the, the, the directedness of the system. Um, and wrapped up in all of this is just realizing the issues that come from communication that can be over, over overly controlling um, and it can kind of dictate and it can be co co coercive, cohesive, what am I it can be controlling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
we, knowing that we that's a problem that we've had um, and where we've been and where pedagogy is now, then then how do we move away from that? Jimmy, there's a couple. Yeah, I was just, just going to say because it's there's a couple of threads there that I'd love to dive into with you guys. And there were two things that really stood out to me in, in what is obviously a very in-depth answer. And in that there was one thing that was screaming at me, which was control. So you're talking about the environment, we're talking culture, and that, that's the second part really to, to this that I'd like to throw to you guys because we get a lot of questions from say coaches, PDP members um, who say, "How can I change my culture? I've got this cultural issue in my club." And there's a sense of control that goes with, with that. And you also touched on the idea of communication and control and the way we talk. So when you challenge the idea of a coach talking tactics, that people, people might go, well, of course you've got to talk tactics. You're a coach. That's your job. And, and of course, what we're trying to do here is challenge the tradition and the role of what coaching is. And so we'll do you because you're, you're sort of suggesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if we create the right environment and we create that broader theme, then perhaps... Uh, ideas will emerge as opposed to saying we're going to work on X, Y, or Z or take a, a linear approach. So so maybe I'll, I'll throw over to Mark on this as well first, just because, uh, Jimmy, you've had a few minutes on that topic. And Mark, do you sort of see out of those two threads of control and culture, how do they tie together? And if you've got other thoughts on where Jimmy was going, feel free to take it in a different direction. Yeah, I'm just having similar thoughts, Dave, as well, particularly around culture. That's what I was going to ask Jimmy too, I guess, about I guess how he's uh, positioned culture and described culture is how does that compare to maybe how psychology has in the past, but maybe specifically for coaches, how it's come to be talked about and understood in sports teams in particular, because I think in the last 10 years, hasn't it? There's kind of interesting, there's a culture around culture. Mm -hmm. There's now some kind of assumptions and belief that this is how you do culture, which I think you've You've already described, Dave, a fairly common approach, which kind of is kind of the leader or someone higher up in the hierarchy kind of sets the vision, imposes the culture, controls the culture. And we talk about it as almost like as very objectively, like it's an actual entity or it's a static thing. Yeah. Um, and, I, well, I, I know James is obviously talking about it in a much more dynamic way than that. Yeah. He's already alluded to the fact that it's much, much broader than that as well. And I think that ties in with control, which is maybe where you're getting at, Dave, as well. Is I see a lot of culture work really being about controlling or it's really about compliance. Mm. So it's a tool of control to try and get an output, which is some kind of performance, however we want to define performance. Mm. They said it's kind of, I know it's kind of working at a meta level, but that's the, that, those beliefs about, that's the actual culture we've got at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I think, well, I actually saw a really interesting example of this, and it was something I'm probably going to share with people on the PDP Slack community. And it, it resonated with me because I'm an NRL fan, a rugby league fan, and, and I saw a, a clip this week of a CEO standing at the front of the room, um, basically saying, with approaching things with a siege mentality, saying the whole world's against us, we're going to close ranks, we're, we're going to get in the trenches and back each other, we've got to support our mates. Uh, there, were, there was some colourful language in this particular clip. And I thought to myself, I find that massively alarming to see that kind of, it's almost sort of traditional, or what, what I would perceive to be a fairly archaic pep talk with a CEO out in front of the room and a group of players who seemed completely disengaged from the conversation. And I found that quite strange because it seemed to me that 
there was almost a lack of ideas around answers. And for me, it speaks to what you're saying in that we we perceive that if we stand in the room and say we're we're going to get our mates back and we're going to get in the trenches and the whole world's against us, that's going to create this culture. When in fact, you've still got ultimate control at the front of the room saying this is what we have to do. These are the expectations. And it's a sort of, it's a vague example um, without sort of naming the club involved and so on. But I found it to be a really uh, interesting example of what uh, control and culture and, and what we perceive these things to be. But for me, it missed the mark entirely. It, um, it, it almost resonates with the idea that we just revert back to an old tried and trusted narrative yeah. when we're in, you know, times of trouble. Yep. Um, so whether that's consciously or, or more, more of just the kind of subconscious thing, we kind of drift back to, to those, um, those safe ways of working. Uh, I mean, for me, like speaking to, to that example and the point you made, Mark, around compliance and control, one of the points I try and get across in the paper is that we have this, um, we have a dominant scientific lens um, that, that we've used to try and almost understand everything because we've had so much success in zooming in and reducing things and breaking them down that we've had, you know, success and it kind of led to the industrial revolution, which is something that is, you know, a, a massive uh, landmark moment for us. It's almost like that's led to a real dominance in a way of doing science and understanding the world. And so much of that is about, well, can we predict and control the thing that we're looking at and the thing that we're trying to, to understand here? Um, and as we talked about, that leads to, well, we might need to isolate certain things. We might need to bring it into a lab so we can control for certain, um, for certain variabilities. Uh, and I, I do believe that that's led to this style of thinking even around culture now. Uh, as you both of you have alluded to, it's about compliance and control because I think we're applying that same lens to human beings and to groups. Uh, even though it's from what we know now today, it's wildly inaccurate. I still think there is the tendency to do that. And it can be that often when times are hard, we start to go, oh, no, we need to now look at culture. This is an important thing because we have the sense that, that the culture is bad or the feeling is bad in the group. And again, I think that tendency is then to go back to these, these tried and trusted methods. I mean, it's something that's been talked about for a while. And um, um, I think it was Michel Foucault who talked about an epistemological hegemony which is just a, a dominant way of like understanding the world and collecting a certain type of data. Um, so like zooming in and quantifying things has, has been that and continues to be that. Like we live in a world of analytics now. And I think it's interesting to consider how much that has led to a dehumanizing influence um, because we just want to quantify each other. Uh, and now with the internet, 
uh, we have even better ways, even more ways to, to quantify people's attention and the time they spend doing things. So more and more we reduce each other to numbers, um, you know, inherently dehumanizing. And then we, want, then we start to talk about culture um, because we're losing the relationships between people. Um, so uh, for me, it, it circles round. Um, and therefore questioning that scientific lens, which has become kind of a dominant worldview, becomes important to recognize, uh, but understanding how we change the day-to-day -day interactions in, in, in like, you know, in, in real world micro settings uh, is more relevant in terms of how we actually stimulate some change. Uh, Mark, maybe maybe you want to talk to that. Well, I think just in a like from really grounded experience, I suppose, just on that idea of um, shifting from kind of yeah analytics to culture. I, I I think in in often culture we're just really using is like a code word almost for more the human element. So we get so caught up in process and the numbers and data and, as you say, and trying to use them essentially to control. And we forget about human relationships, trust, learning, all the, those types of terms. And, and so what we're really doing is when we go too far off course down that really process-orientated, very analytical approach, especially in a team sport type domain where it is a, a large group of people, it, it, it takes us, yeah, it takes us off track. And I think at some point we realise that and then we say, oh, we need to fix the culture. But what we're really saying is we need to attend to people. Mm. We need to realise these are humans there and all those human elements and interactions that go on. So in a way, that's, that's also nothing new, is it? But again, I'd argue that, that the culture and Western culture at the moment is heavily what you've described, Jimmy, and going even more so to that extremely analytical and, and the, the paradox at the moment is, um, whilst we, in your paper's example, whilst more and more of the theory and the thinking and actually experienced coaches kind of tacit or experiential knowledge is towards understanding complexity and interaction, technology and people selling technology are driving us down a more and more reductionist path. So we've got this really interesting tension at the moment about how that's all unfolding. And I'd say that's, that's the, the culture at the moment. That's kind of the water we're swimming in. So you the metaphor from, from previous times. Yeah. Yeah, super yeah. interesting. Go on, Jimmy. Well, it also plays out on the, on the pitch in, in football yeah. with the, the use of game models. Um, and, you know, that the people understand that term in different ways. Um, but it essentially is, is somewhat, because the other dynamic, or another dynamic here is, is like top down, um, which is generally what comes with this, this lens and this way of working aiming for control and compliance. It means there is, there is something that is controlling and it is usually, usually something that's top down in a hierarchy. Um, and there's really interesting discussion around like game models in football and whether they are, they're basically top down constraints, like global constraints. Um, and 
they can be they can facilitate because a constraint can facilitate things or they can mm. inhibit things it's not necessarily good or bad mm. but um but talking to some guys um uh, in barcelona at la masia recently they're going through a process of really questioning the use of their game model their style of play so this thing that the rest of the world looks at and goes oh barcelona they're they're, they're so good because they all have this defined way of playing, this, this game model that, that everyone adheres to. Um, and then now questioning whether this is just too controlling. So given that we understand athletes as, as being, um, you know, athletes and people, again, as complex adaptive systems, uh, as non-linear and, uh, and in learning, being in the interactions and the varied interactions of people, um, they're questioning the how, at least how they bring about the game, the game model or the style of play. Like the style of play, they, they don't want to get rid of that. So the, their identity and the way they do things on the pitch with the short passing and the idea to dominate the ball and win it back quickly and all that stuff that's become really popular now. Yeah, they want to keep that. But they recognize that there's different ways of doing that. So there can be more of a top-down approach, which is the game model, but there could also be a bottom-up approach whereby the local interactions between players what emerges from those local interactions is the same pattern of play, but it's based on like, it's based on local interactions, not global concepts. Um, so maybe an, I, maybe um, an example of this is a conversation I was having with a coach last night. He was asking about um, a session that we were, we were both looking at and he was talking about, the defensive triangle, so how it's really useful for, for uh, in certain moments, players to be in a defensive triangle. So he asked me, you know, is this a concept that you that you work with, um, or is it like do you kind of like do you believe in it, <laughs> or mm. do you know this concept type thing? And um, and I was saying, well, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but we we would not talk to the players about a triangle. We wouldn't necessarily say, you know, can you find a triangle on the pitch? Or, you know, we would say, because that's a global concept that's going to basically uh, shape the local interactions. We would talk about something that we think shines a light on the more relevant information, uh, which is, can you close the gap between each other uh, so the ball can't go through you? And at the same time, can you get as close to the ball as possible so you can win it? Now, with those, talking about those kind of more local concepts or local interactions, we would see, if they do that well, we would see like a defensive triangle emerge at times. But we would also see other patterns emerge at other times. Um, so we don't lock them into this global idea but we, we work at a, at a more local level whereby those ideas might emerge and those patterns might emerge, but there is room and space for other patterns to emerge as well. This is principle based, isn't it, Jimmy? I mean, what we're saying here is there's a principle of, you know, so you take the, take the five yard fury or the pressing to get the ball back quickly 
as an example. The principle is this is what we'd like to see. Right. These are the behaviors. How they actually are executed could be varied in every interaction. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Because, again, I'm trying to tie this back to I'm a technical director tuning into this. I'm a coach tuning into this. You know, you're saying, okay, we don't want to just put this theme or this, this is how we defend. These are the answers. But here's an idea. And how the players execute that is, is, how, is up to them in terms of them collaborating and finding a solution, right? Kind of. And I want Mark to jump in on this one because he's, mm. I find he's much better at explaining this stuff. But, <laughs> but I, what I'm essentially getting at is that there are principles that are, like, that are, are kind of global concepts. You can call those principles. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are also like principles or concepts that are more that direct players' attention to local interactions. Sure. So with the principle, are we directing the players' attention towards a global structure? Um, that, or are we, are we directing them to local information? Mark, can you jump in? Yeah, I think you explained it pretty well, mate. From my understanding is, um, I think you t- you probably haven't mentioned maybe too much around self-organisation. So I think what you're talking about there are principles to help players so essentially self-organise. Yeah, yeah. And so, exactly. you know, one of the common, if we do, you know, seemingly take a tangent or, or go off on a, in a different field, but it is quite a common example of, of patterns of bird flocking. And, and exactly. scientists have discovered that there's kind of three rules or you might say principles that, that birds use to self-organise essentially um, and people can go and look, look up. I won't tell you what they are. You might want to go and look up um, what those are. But they basically, from those simple principles or rules, you see these quite intricate and elaborate patterns emerge at that global level. And so that's, I think, what I think listening to you guys talk, I think what occurred to me is what's interesting, I think, is especially through a, a young player's developmental journey, you know, the balance of local and global, if you like, or if you want to talk about more local self-organisation and interaction through to more where you started, Jimmy, about a kind of top-down game model, what's, where's the balance and, and should that shift a bit throughout that developmental yeah. journey? Exactly. And then the point, circling back to the, uh, the title of the paper, the argument I'm making is that developing creativity requires uh, more of an emphasis on the local interactions that can lead to self-organization um, and which then creates a space for innovation in those moments as well because I'm not cognitively like attuning I'm not cognitively thinking about trying to create a global structure I'm attending to the information and the changing uh, the changing environment um, in and around me so I'm playing in a more intuitive way. Um, which should like which can lead to the same kind of or similar global patterns and the advantage there because people might go well it's just going to lead to the same thing then and it can look very similar but the advantage when you go from local interactions and that's where your focus is because of the space for creativity then people can players will break that pattern when when the opportunity is there rather than just continually playing the pattern because that's what they've been told from a top down. Um, so the, the ability to break the pattern becomes the really the crucial part of this. Um, yeah. 
I think it, give, it gives you that in the, I guess, ideal world, or if it all panned out well, it gives you both stability yet flexibility, as you're saying, with the flexibility being actually at the right times to break the pattern, whether that's in a more deliberative, pre-planned kind of way, or whether it is super spontaneous, what we might call more creative in the moment actions and collective action. But it steers you away from rigidity, which is when, yeah, we just need to play this defensive triangle. Mm-hmm. And we, we never change that pattern. It becomes rigid, actually becomes fragile and breaks because the opposition just work out basically how to play through it, around it, whatever the case may be. And, and you're failing the player, aren't you? Because you are not equipping the player with, uh, I guess, adaptability within their toolbox for when they dive into a different environment. Because that, that rigid approach may be very effective. And again, to tie this back to a, a practical question, we had, a, we had a question on this recently from another PDP member who said, we recently played a team who were playing a lot of passing triangles. They passed the ball beautifully. They dominated the ball. They beat us 8-0. Their kids were better players than us. And, and I think the word better can be challenged. Maybe they were just more football mature at the time. Maybe they had a bit more experience. Maybe they were just coached in such a rigid way that it looked better to the adult lens. But on the day, this result went against them. And the question was, should I be coaching my players around these fixed patterns and these triangles to get success? Now, my argument was no, because these were under eights. And this was the key part of the question. Now, that may evolve if they're under 23s and you're out in a performance environment. But with under eights, my my reply to that was essentially, you've got to equip these players based on potentially attributes or based on skills they need to learn and expose them to various things and give them a chance to go and dribble and fail and go and dribble and fail. And then maybe maybe one day we will work on switching play and passing patterns a bit more, but we're not going to tell them how that's going to be done. We're going to say, we'd like to encourage you to do something or we'd like to give you the idea of something and how you go and execute that's different. I think it can be, it comes back to that control piece for me. You know, again, I'm trying to relate things to being on the grass. I think we believe we can control a lot more than we actually can as coaches, as adults in these environments. Yeah, I think I think the, I was thinking about that um, earlier today, Dave. Almost that exact topic about, and, and in a more positive light as coaches, like not not to hope we're not not sounding negative here, but <laughs> it is that especially transitioning from playing to coaching as well. It's suddenly, yes. oh geez, how can I? I want to have a positive influence. Yep. But I'm not on the pitch anymore. What can I do? And I think because, and particularly with youth players. Actually, we overlook how much we actually can do with really well-designed practices based on principles. So we actually can have a massive influence by practice design and then, you know, traditional pedagogical tools around feedback and instruction and questions. But we tend to become, because we're so fixed on the idea of talent, I think we skip over the influence we can have there and go straight to, well, the only way I can really have an influence is through structures and set plays and plans. Mm -hmm. So so I think there's positive intent there. But again, it's just a whole, again, it's complex. There's a range of things going on that might lead us down the path. And it it comes back to, I'm sorry to circle back to this again, (laughs) but the the dominant scientific lens has led to a body of knowledge that understands certain things and has ignored or can't understand others. So we can't, we haven't been able to understand creativity very well or understand learning very well. Um, And therefore we haven't developed practices like that, that really are 
are useful for those things. So it's not surprising that we revert to like top down, more controlling ways of working because that's what, that's the same lens that we've applied or the same practice that we've applied across the board. Um, It's the dominant way of viewing how the world works. Mm. Um, So, so getting beyond that is, um, is part of this problem as well. Talking to the guys in Barcelona again at La Masia, they were talking about coaches' success and coach ego, which I know we've all talked about a lot before. Um, and Dave, you've got a, a great piece on the website about this. But they were saying um, one of the things is coaches define their success by having their team um, like display the game model. So in this context, Barcelona's way of playing. Uh, And then alongside that, winning games as well. But the focus is very much for the coach, like their team, their isolated group of players within this bigger coach, you know, this bigger player development structure, which is the academy from the young ages to the older. and they find that really problematic as well because the coach just wants to get his team playing this, this way of playing, um, this game model. So players are a number eight or a six or a fullback and they're always in those positions and they're taught exactly what to do in those positions from an early age because they want to show as a coach, hey, I can get a team to play in this way. Um, and that's the goal. And the, the thinking behind that is, well, if I can get a team to play in this way and that defines success here, then I'm going to move up through the ranks. So again, the, the way we view things has led to certain success criteria that then only reinforces this way of working. Um, whereas what they're trying to talk about now, and Mark, I know you spent some time talking with the same guys uh, um, at FC Barcelona, is then way more interested in how do we encourage local interactions um, that will lead to the the same pattern of players, same style of play, um, and having players experience different positions, but then still um, this pattern, this style, this way of being, being evident in that. So that they want to flip things uh, and start working that way because they recognize the benefits in it and the potential for players to be more adaptive and more creative. Mm. Um, and I mean, it was just yesterday a colleague of mine who had also spoke to certain people in and around um, that part of the world was saying that so many of the players coming through um, the Barca Academy, a lot of them end up in Division Two Spain and, and, like, and things like that in that league and are struggling to play with other players in other clubs um, because they've become so rigidly attuned to the, the playing, uh, the, the game model of FC Barcelona. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I think that um, if you've got a club of that caliber questioning things and reevaluating things, which are obviously, you know, been embedded for a long time. And again, there's, there's content on the website around Jimmy's PhD in this. We've presented about the culture in Barcelona and the influence on the style of play. I think, I think that's really interesting. 
I, th I think I sort of want to take the conversation towards, uh, I guess, some of these other ideas around ecological dynamics and a form of life. I mean, Jimmy, this, this comes up in the paper. We've sort of touched it. We've sort of gone around this a little bit in some of the things we've talked about. But perhaps we'll go to Mark first in terms of this idea of a formal life and, and also touching on values and how they sort of emerge within environments. I mean, do, do you want to sort of kick us off on that, Mark? Uh, yeah, it's a big one. It's, um, I've got a, it's probably more maybe frame a, a bit of a, well, a story, I guess, some recent observations I've made for Jimmy, because it will actually be a form of life that he's very familiar with, which is futsal. And, um, yeah, just some observations recently in Adelaide. So there's a local YMCA centre that started running futsal sesh, training sessions and competitions. And I've been, um, I've kind of been in and out there over the last few months. And, it, and from my understanding, futsal is often positioned, isn't it, as a great developmental tool. If you're looking at it from a football perspective, it's a great developmental tool, great for creativity and ball control and all those sorts of things, um, if I understand it correctly. But it's been really interesting watching it, I guess, how, how that interacts with what you might call the form of life in Australian sport. So I remember one of the first sessions I saw, so I was probably, I don't know how the kids, probably, kids were probably nine or 10, I reckon, in this session. And I reckon for 15 or 20 minutes of what I assume was probably an hour long session, they were doing shuttle runs and agility work. <laughs> wow. And, and then wow. In, in some of the competition, again, it strikes me back to a topic we just kind of talked about is it, it's, for probably there, there was a group of early teens, I won't say exactly what their age were, but kind of early teens. And it just seemed, again, very, very coach-led. And there were some interesting uh, set plays being run from a corner, which were really interesting to watch because they worked for a couple and then the other team had figured them out. But just exactly as we just spoke about, they didn't adapt and got to the point where for quite advanced players for that age were making ridiculously dumb passes straight to the opposition from a corner play because they were just yeah. sticking to the script. So it struck me again, it was quite coach-led. So I'm interested, I guess, Jimmy, in your take on that of, of you've got almost one culture or what we portray as a futsal culture, but it's kind of embedded maybe in a broader form of life in sport in Australia or coaching culture. Like how do, how do you see that? Uh, it's a really interesting example and uh, I think yeah it's it shines a light on the problem here of one of the problems whereby we pick up a certain practice that has yeah. developed in a certain cultural context and we, we we lift it out of that that cultural context and we go and we put it down in another cultural context and we we imagine that it's going to lead to the same kind of uh, we're going to see the same things happening so futsal emerging in South America and, and, and Brazil or Uruguay originally and then Brazil and the, the Latin American countries has been infused with the, the, the playfulness, the, the cunning, the trickery, the, the street smarts um, of that context of those cultures. So, you know, they play games like um, they, they play one-on-one -on -one games where the goal is just to nutmeg each other a lot. So, you know, that then infuses the way they play futsal. They have samba and uh, 
and uh, the idea of Jinga and um, Capoeira. So those movement cultures infuse the way they play futsal and then that infuses the way that they play football. Um, but when we, we just pick up the nuts and bolts of futsal, like it's this size pitch, it's these rules, and then we put it down in another context, in a context whereby, you know, coach-led is dominant, uh, being organized is valued, um, training sessions looking hard and difficult, uh, and you need to be being demanding. Big and yeah, big and strong, exactly. Then we can't be surprised when it, it, it looks very, very different and has very, very different learning outcomes. Mm -hmm. no, sorry, learning outcomes is a slip of the tongue for me. But very different <laughs> learnings. <laughs> there are no learning outcomes. Yeah. Um, not predefined anyway. Certainly. It's not. all right. It's all right, Jimmy. Um, it shows you've been on the grass a bit lately, mate. <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm sweating now. <laughs> just cut that session plan away, mate, with the learning yeah. outcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we won't tell everybody you were doing a whiteboard of a phase of play before we started. Yeah. But, um, but look, I, I'd love to chime in on that as well, Mark, because I think we've had conversations around the, the narratives in Australian sport. Both of us came back from the UK where we saw some real progression in the UK mm -hmm. coaching scene. You know, I, I sort of moved back to Australia after being away for five years and was quite shocked with some of the things I've seen. The corner example is something I've seen with players I've worked with where we would set plays and say, within that, adapt. Obviously, if player X goes here, then adapt because we need you to. So we would, we would encourage that. What we would do is encourage the setup to be really accurate, mm. um, but then adapt to what's in front of you because mm. if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And mm. So we gave them tools and still it would regularly break down. The second point for me was I love, Jimmy, the idea of literally lifting futsal from Uruguay and Brazil and popping it there in Adelaide and just going, oh, well, we're, we're going to do it our way and it's going to work and it's going to produce players. In contrast to that, I've worked in environments where we have used futsal and I've taken teams to tournaments in these sort of skill acquisition age groups where futsal is a, a key part. Now, when it's done well and transplanted in this case into a UK environment where there's a history of street football, which has perhaps disappeared in recent years through different changes in society and, and, and so on. When done well, it can have those outcomes. When you create mixed age groups, when you create freedom to play, when you, uh, when you play the game the way it's meant to be played, where you step back as coaches and don't make it coach-centric with the shuttle runs that Mark's alluded to, it can work well and therefore be a part of a program within your club or within your environment we say, okay, it's futsal night. We're stepping off as coaches and we're going to say the, the 13s and 16, 13s to 16s all play together. And you've got a 16 leading a 13 and you've got those social interactions and all those benefits, which whilst it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, authentic in the sense that it's not street futsal in Rio or it's not street football in Birmingham, it is still the closest we can get for kids in 2019 to an experience of mixed age groups and play and experimentation and us stepping out of the way. And I think I'm not saying don't coach. I'm not saying that we have to disappear completely, but I am saying that we have to create more authentic experiences using these kind of ideas. 100%. But what you're also doing there is respecting the cultural context that it's come from in recognizing that that was free play. Uh, and therefore there wasn't a coach involved in that. So there's that side of things, but, and also you're, the beauty with futsal is that it has a different name from football. Mm. Um, and therefore, players, my, personally, I didn't carry my football, my emotional football baggage with me into futsal. 
uh, until I got to a higher level and then the same thing, you know, the same baggage occurs because you're in a similar pressured environment. Um, but, but I think, again, coming back to the core of the paper and, and the, the emphasis on, on culture or the emphasis on um, transdisciplinarity is really, for me, understanding the context that you're in and then designing the practice accordingly. So for me, culture is, it's not necessary. It's, it's about recognizing that there's already cultural values there. There's already ways of being that are established. There's already a form of life where practices and certain social interactions are the dominant ones. So we want to understand that as well as we possibly can. Uh, and if we do that, then we can design environments that bring to life certain things that might be missing in our form of life. I think your example is a really good one in terms of the use of, uh, of futsal as you described it, because generally we're recognizing that in football, it is too coach centric, it's over-organized and there's too much pressure. So then how do we introduce something that has a history and a legacy from other countries that mm -hmm. don't have those things? Uh, and then how do we organize it, like, if you like, manipulate the constraints around it to really amplify those things uh, and make it different and dampen the emphasis, like, of control, of over-organized, of pressure to become a professional football player? So for me, it's anything can be good. Uh, but you've got to understand the wider dynamics at play or the cultural and social dynamics at play when you put a program of practice in place. Mm. Um, and the same thing is true of the rondos, which is an example I use a lot because it's so simple. The same thing gets plucked out of context. It's plucked out of, uh, you know, often the, the Catalan or the Spanish context whereby it has values infused in it that mean there is an intention to play in a certain way. But when you pick that up and pop it down in, in Australia or, or even in Sweden, those intentions aren't there because the cultural context is different and the values are different. So it won't, it won't be played the same way. So then we need to understand what that means. And then we can use certain constraints, rules, point systems to shape an intention um, that is gonna lead to the the type of play that is representative of um, the moment in the game that we want to reproduce or mm. the interactions we want to expose the players to so they can then develop those skills. Mm. I think, um, I'm not sure, you may have even mentioned on, on the Masterclass Day, but I know Paul McGuinness has been on and, and I remember speaking to him two or three years ago before I'd left the UK mm. about um, what he used to do at Manchester United and I think the stories he told me probably get as close, Jimmy, to what you're saying about almost how it created, I think it was almost like a mo motivational climate. So mm. he was talking about how at Man U with the youth teams, they'd like kind of have the cage environment and, you know, the stories of Rashford playing against Pogba and the age differences and all those things. But he said as coaches, he and, and the other coaches that work there, they were very aware of the type of almost climate they were trying to create. So sometimes be very playful, so very less kind of street based, really encouraging play, creativity, express yourself, those things. At other times, he said they'd want to have a real hard edge. 
Yeah. At times almost one of them would go in and might start just kicking a couple of guys and just <laughs> making it, you know, that, that bit spicy. Yes, exactly. Good word, though, spicy. Another time they might want to be just really competitive. So, you know, big focus, almost an ego orientated, if you like, climate of focus on who's going to win this and it's scoring yeah. and it's competitive and it matters. So they're manipulating, if you like, really through social constraints, manipulating social constraints or social interactions, how they behave, the overall climate, but done with a, with a very specific purpose. And that, to me, you know, that's high-class, high-quality coaching. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a great example and it's a wonderful conversation we've got with Paul where he does talk about that, that cage example. I know he's presented uh, through the FA where he is now uh, on those stories. I think the thing here for coaches, like some practical ideas, is that what we're saying is that, you know, Jimmy's not saying don't do a rondo in Sweden. It's just going to be different in Sweden. The implications are different because the players' uh, upbringing, their culture, their socio-cultural constraints are all going to be different to the kids on the street in Barcelona who are then playing in La Masia or wherever they are. So I think we're, we're saying understand and, ex, and you can't expect, and, and the Australian example is good, you can't expect that they're going to play the same way as a, as a different culture. Um, but I, th I think there's also uh, some other considerations there when it comes to, uh, you know, those, those social dynamics. And when you're developing uh, within your club or within your team, when you're looking at your planning, can you find a place for the ideas that you've suggested, Mark? You know, can you find a place where Wednesday night's going to be tournament night and it's going to be competitive and it's going to be fierce and it's going to be about winning mentality? Now, that doesn't mean coaches screaming, shouting, berating, controlling, but it might mean tonight there's going to be something on the line or tonight we want to see uh, this group of players push beyond, you know, maybe it's younger versus older. So can you you know, ramp up and ramp down the challenge throughout the year to give that diversity of experience as opposed to rigid coach development curriculums which might say we turn up and you know i've supported coaches um for a while now who might say well i deliver you know a, a possession game and then i deliver a pattern of play and then i deliver a game and that's my session structure now my question for them is well how can you challenge yourself in changing that because if you do that every time for me that's going to be quite a linear and rigid way for the players to train they're going to turn up expect to know what's going to happen and then going back to the creativity piece, Jimmy, and you, you can chime in here, mate. For me, that's probably going to kill the creativity within the environment because there's almost an expectation of we're just going to go through the motions tonight. You know, so I think it's about that diversity for me. Yeah, uh, I think going back to what Mark mentioned before, like in relation to that, I think that's a really nice practical example. But then I was thinking like, you pose the question of, well, how do we plan for that? Mm. So that, that strategic level planning is always slightly more of a, it's going to lead to like global like concepts and principles and ideas that are going to shape local interactions. Um, and I don't think, I'm not saying there's not a place for that at all. I think there is a place for that because I think, my, in my understanding, many in many ways, culture is that is that more global uh, that more global kind of uh, constraint that influences local interactions. But in a sense, it's something that has emerged from local interactions over time. So we have to recognise this this circle where these things are constantly influencing each other. Um, and then the interesting thing with culture there being that it can often just sit below the surface of what we what we recognise. It's it's um, underlying assumptions often, mm -hmm. rather than like things that we openly talk about. 
Yeah. And this leads me to then Mark's work with Al and, and Jono around, like, can we have the bigger conversation around what really are the values guiding the way we do things? Um, and I think this is, for me, important because if we're talking about global principles and global constraints, then values seem to be the, I mean, they, they seem to be things that emerge across cultures um, in, in different contexts around the world. So they seem to be these ideas that resonate um, and, and emerge as human beings kind of coexist and, and kind of work together. Uh, and there seems to be a somewhat um, universal-like um, spectrum uh, of these values as well, which is, which is pretty interesting. But as, as the guiding constraints for like, complex adaptive systems, they seem to be the, like, the best fit, the most fit for purpose. Uh, and like there's a, a story I'm, I've probably mentioned this to both of you previously, but I think it brings it to life quite nicely. There's the idea is that you can be uh, driving your car um, and you, you're driving your car and you come to a, or you hit a wall, okay? And the car stops. It's a physical law and you're not going to get around that. The car will stop because you hit the wall. Um, the next example, so physical laws constrain what we can do. The next sure. example is you're driving along and you come to a red light. Um, it's a social rule, if you like. So you, you stop your car because you're at a red light. It's a social rule. It's a construct, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, it agrees, it's agreed upon and, and it, you know, it constrains your behavior or guides your behavior. But then you're driving along and a, a kid steps out into the road. Uh, and you stop your car. You do you, you do everything you can to stop your car to not hit the kid. Um, and that's not a physical law that's governing your behavior, and it's not a social rule. It, it's a value. It's a value in human life. But that value not only has an influence when you drive your car, it has an influence throughout your life in everything that you do in all other contexts. It's going to shape your behavior because you value human life. And you don't want to kill anyone or hurt anyone in most cases. Um, whereas the red line is only specific to that section of the road. And it's only specific to when you're driving your car. Um, and in the culture that we have, with the scientific lens we've been using, with the emphasis on predicting and controlling and compliance, we seem to have thrown up red lights everywhere to try and like shape people's behavior. So you have policies and procedures for everything. So every imaginable like circumstance. And, and this just, I mean, it's not, it's not fit for purpose when working with complex adaptive systems, i.e. people and groups of people. What is fit for purpose or what is closer and more appropriate is to work with values that then transcend different contexts. Um, and then there's a flexibility in understanding how you embody this value in this context. So I suppose, and I'll kind of leave this over to Mark, because these are, I imagine, I mean, these are the conversations he's having with, with big sports organizations. 
is, is kind of recalling what it is that we value in sport and then making sure that that value is, is a guiding principle um, through everything that happens and what we do. So then you have this global idea, this global principle that, that runs through and influences organizational structures, uh, how people work together and collaborate in teams, staff, um, administrators, and then down to coaches and players. Mm. Would that be a fair explanation, Uppy? Um. Yeah, we'll see where it, see where it goes. I'll I'll take I'll take it on and see see where we end up. <laughs> so, my my thought listening to that, Jimmy, is the red light construct is still mm. based around the same value as stopping putting the brakes on, not running. As in, it's it's designed to avoid accidents and stop people dying, if you like. So it's value yeah, yeah. life. So the, yeah. I think this is a really interesting thing. And again, if we if we put a more hopeful and positive uh, light or stance on things, is yeah, actually people generally have good intent, mm. or you know they're good values. If if there is such a thing, either at the universal level, or and if you talk human rights, virtually or rights of the child, as is topical at the moment, particularly in Sweden. Is so we all we all actually value this preserving life, but how I guess how society at a very broad level then goes about acting and respecting that value can differ, and this is where it becomes very yeah. different. So the red light symbolising a very centralised control approach yeah. versus I guess the the common comparison to a to a um, uh, traffic light intersection would be a roundabout yeah. where the constraints aren't as tight. There's, again, still some principles or mm. you might want to call them rules that we abide by, but what we're trusting in much more is, one, people paying attention because you do have to attend to it, and that's one of the key things we talk to everyone about is that are you constantly attending to the environment, what's going on around here? And so it's, it's attention, and second is to use their judgment. So, yeah, actually, I can get around this roundabout. I'm paying attention. I don't want anyone to die. I don't want to crash. And in my good professional judgment or using my perceptual skills, I can go. Whereas the red light takes away all of that. You basically don't really don't need to attend other than we could probably be looking at your phone, but that's illegal. <laughs> other than wait for, yeah, is it red? Is it green? Okay, that, that makes the decision for me. So I don't have to attend and and... What people are arguing is long-term, so if we take, we talked about zooming in and microscope, we take macroscope here and say the long-term implications of a society that goes down that path may lose the ability to actually make those judgment calls or perceive those affordances. And so it becomes self-reinforcing. We're basically, we're dumbing ourselves down. And that's a lot of talk about AI, and those sorts of things and machine learning and robots overtaking things. People saying the only way that can happen is if we meet them halfway. Yeah. But there's a bit of a trend at the moment of some forces that are trying to nudge us in that yeah. direction. So yeah. that, that's how I'd say our work, you know, I guess our work is, yeah, whether it's on or off the pitch, you know, are you tending to the things that really matter? What, what really matter around here? What are your values? 
or some common principles that can guide and you've got to constantly pay attention and make good sound professional judgments. And, and you need to learn to do that over time. And, and the value is not changing, is it? But the context or the interpretation uh, may differ between various people. I mean, that's kind of what we're getting at is that if we're using that values driven approach, uh, then we are sort of accepting that it may be perceived in different ways, but it should ideally underpin the way we move forward or the way we collaborate or the way we develop, in this case, players, perhaps, if we're talking about coaching examples. Is that kind of where we're getting at? Yeah, I think the, the other thing that, that came, that really just came up for me in that explanation, Uppy, um, is around whether it's engaging or disengaging. Um, and I think sitting at the red light is inherently disengaging. Following the policy is inherently disengaging. Someone else has done the thinking for you. Someone else has, has attuned to the landscape already for you, if you like. Um, and again, it's like a, a top down as opposed to like yeah, being in the moment um, and being engaged with what's going on. And so one, I think one that the, the interesting things there as well, which is kind of the delicious irony of it, is skillful drivers around a roundabout will be much more efficient in terms of throughput of traffic mm-hmm. than the again the traffic light system. But yet we love often associate the words efficiency with the traffic light system is in with control and process and efficiencies and structure and structure yeah. yet actually highly skilled self-organization coordination guided by some principles or rules can be not only more effective but efficient as well if you are if you need to concern yourself with that aspect. well this is the education over control thing isn't it i know jimmy and i have spoken before and i think we almost dived down a tangent of the war on drugs you know and these kind of these kind of broader social issues but there's this uh, there's there's many out there who believe that that's a redundant fight because you know the, the amount of resource and time and energy that goes into it when others will say we'll legalize things or whatever and, and, and mm. look that's up for that's a big debate and a big discussion but it is that sort of principle of well we'll just control and stop everyone here mm. but it's still happening and, and and you know so we're not really winning the battle is it? it's just a, an analogy that kind of popped into my head there absolutely yeah. mm. I think the yeah and the the point. Yeah, the, the point around also dumbing ourselves down is a very relevant one. And, mm. and that's, I'm not sure that we, I'm not sure that we need the advent of AI to, to appreciate that that's an issue right now. Um, and again, the emphasis there and something, a point made in the paper as well is around this reproductive education. So the idea that we're just going to reproduce um, what we already know, um, so we're just going to get these the, this this next generation just to know what what we already know, rather than viewing it, which again is viewing it as as top down as as filling an empty vessel rather than as a as an opportunity to co-create uh, and reimagine and and push boundaries. There's a lack of critical thinking there, isn't there? And or at least encouraging critical thinking within that system. You know, I mean, we, we've talked, and I know, Mark, you've written about the idea of linear education systems and the, the influence of the Industrial Revolution, which Jimmy touched on earlier. But And I'm, and I'm not overly criti- criticising the education system for what it is now or teachers who are out there working hard, but I think we, we need to get away from uh, discouraging critical thought and make sure that we are encouraging that. Now, whether that's in a football environment or a classroom, it doesn't matter. How can we encourage young people who are developing to think critically, to make decisions, to adapt 
to develop skill in the case of football coaches um, as best we can and, and create those environments where there is, uh, you know, where we are challenging them to think, where we are challenging them to adapt constantly. And there's an interesting point there around thinking critically and Mark's example of the roundabout, with, yeah. which is more being attuned um, to, to, to what's going on because then, then we're, we're, we're looking at slightly, slightly different, um, uh, slightly different, um, understandings of, of learning and of, of, of acting in the world. Um, you know, one is more around if we can be engaged and attuned and present with, with our environment and what's going on from a perception action point of view versus critically thinking, which can just be sitting, you know, in a bit of a daydream whereby you're thinking in your own head and reflecting on things or having a conversation that does that. Mm. Um, and it's interesting to consider which of those two experiences we prioritize more at the moment and which of those we see more as, as learning. And, um, yeah. And for me, the, the, the critical thinking, thinking in our own head piece is, is something that, that dominates a little bit more than being engaged with the environment and attuned to the environment and, and acting in more of a, maybe it's like even acting in more of a flow state. Mm-hmm. Do you think, Jimmy, do you talk in your paper, I was going to ask you, in terms of the education system, do you talk much to that or have any narrative around that? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's some small pieces around that. Just, uh, yeah, basically around this idea of reproductive education and just that we're just reproducing um, what's gone before us. Mm. Uh, and the need to, to kind of get alongside the learner and co-create. I mean, the, the beauty is there's lots of principles in, in those ideas that are similar principles that are talked about in transdisciplinarity, that are similar principles that are talked about in um, collaboration for creativity. So it, it's almost like across these, these slightly different situations, uh, or different contexts and domains, the same principles are really uh, are kind of shining through. And I think the paper doesn't explicitly mention that, but it's implicit in the in the red thread running through. Mm-hmm. So really, can we can we collaborate and co-create together? Um, and that's often yeah, being aware of our of the baggage we bring with us, which can often be cultural, um, and then making sure that. We, we create a space that's, that's free of unwanted bias um, mm. and we can move forward together. Really, really interesting, guys. And I guess on that note, heading towards the end of the conversation, for those who have tuned in and, and you know, we've thrown a lot of ideas around and gone down some various tangents here, Mark, I'll start with you. Have you got some sort of takeaways or some summaries, I guess, and considerations for those who are perhaps technical directors of clubs or in leadership roles at various sporting organisations as to how they can interpret some of the ideas we've discussed and, and, and take, some, take some ideas into their environment? Mm, yeah, I think um, what Jimmy's work and like this paper and, and some of his other work is, is maybe alluding to and maybe providing some frameworks to is that ability to really, and Jimmy mentioned earlier, join up, if you like that kind of saying, I guess from boot room to boardroom in a way, is, is actually there's some common principles or ways of looking at this thing 
that we're trying to do and trying to help, particularly I think we talk a lot about young people, um, shine and flourish. Are there some things off the pitch um, that we can consider in terms of principles and, and frameworks and ways of going about it that are actually really similar, underpinned by similar ideas as on the pitch? That's, that's probably just one thing I'd mm. encourage yeah, people in technical directors or kind of heads of type roles to, to think about um, in terms of, yeah, the influence they can have through those mm. roles. And Jimmy, from your perspective, any kind of key takeaways to sum things up uh, before we wrap the conversation? Yeah, well, very similar to what, uh, to what Mark said there. And it's actually something I've been reflecting on recently uh, having kind of moved role uh, here at AIK, so now my role is head of development for 13 to 19. So I've been having to think in this way a little bit more. <laughs> and I think the key one around exactly what Mark mentioned is, is principles like can we collaborate, can we co-create, um, and can we can we work with local interactions? And this is something that, that to be fair, um, Dennis Hortin and Marco Sullivan have been doing in the club for the last couple of years in the yeah. eight to twelve space, which has been a focus. Yeah. So having local interactions between coaches regularly as a, as a as a way of as a way of educating and developing coaches. And then providing an organisational structure that privileges those interactions, uh, and that's still a work in progress. So getting better and better at that. Um, and then I think what it's a little bit like if I if we go back onto the pitch and we talk about um, the the game model um, versus the local interactions. I, I wonder if this can be a little bit like how developing countries have skipped using landlines and putting in that massive infrastructure and they've gone mm. straight to, to mobile phones, yeah. which is just like a, you know, a, a better way of doing the same thing. So for me, I wonder working with you know, new coaches coming through and even parent coaches, maybe we, we kind of just move beyond the idea of say game model uh, and we just work with local interactions mm. um, or at least sh certainly shift the focus in that way. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's going to lead to like a bit of a development jump. Yeah, it's a challenging point to finish on, Jimmy, and a really interesting one. Now, for those who have tuned in, obviously on the Player Development Project website, you can seek out a lot of content from both Mark and Jimmy. Search their names on the website. Lots of really interesting articles around some of the topics we have covered. As well, I would strongly encourage people to uh, head over to myfastestmile.com and check out some of the work that Mark and his colleagues over there are doing and, and really trying to uh, influence and, and shape uh, organizations and sport and otherwise as well so on that note i want to thank both of you for your time it's been a fascinating conversation mark thank you so much for your time thanks dave excellent to have you back on and jimmy as always made a pleasure and a challenge and uh, lots of great ideas to come out congratulations on having your paper published mate and well done thank you for being here tonight cheers mate no thank you very much for for bringing us all all together tonight um yeah it's been a lot of fun Excellent, and we'll look forward to another Player Development Project Masterclass discussion very soon. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. 
Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.